Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm excited today to be speaking to Tom Zollner about his book titled Island on Fire, The Revolt That Ended Slavery in the British Empire, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. Uh, I found this book really interesting. It combines the day-to-day on the ground, what was actually happening in Jamaica during this really important um, uprising and moment, and puts it in the context of debates around slavery across the British Empire, um, and in the context of Jamaican colonial history as well. So it does a lot of things all at once, um, which is incredibly interesting and very helpful. So Tom, I'm really happy to welcome you to the podcast. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write the book? Sure. Um, I'm Tom Zollner. I'm a professor of English at Chapman University in California. And this book started uh, as a larger project about sugar, uh, and its consequential role in uh, Atlantic history, particularly of, particularly, of course, its role in the Caribbean. And it was intended as a broad biography of this uh, nutritionally worthless product that uh, was responsible for the, the misery of, of, of millions of people, obviously through the transatlantic slave trade. And uh, that, that was just too broad of a lens. And uh, through the reading, I, I learned, of course, about uh, the Jamaica Revolt of 1831-1832 that was the largest domino to fall um, in uh, Britain's 300-plus uh, year history with slavery. And uh, while it was, of course, a well-known element of uh, Caribbean history, I couldn't find uh, a single uh, subject book on the topic that uh, looked at not just the, uh, the, the means of the rebellion, but also its political effect uh, back in Britain. And um, th- this seemed like a, uh, um, a topic that was worthy of further exploration. And, and um, I somewhat brazenly decided that I was going to try and fill the gap. I mean, that seems like quite a fun way to start a project, you know, having an idea of kind of what you want to fill and then deciding to just sort of sink your teeth into it and going after it. Yeah. Um, it, in traveling to the Caribbean, uh, as many listeners of the podcast know, you're going to see uh, for a, a term that I'm going to coin on the spot here, the, the ghosts of sugar, uh, not just in the way that um, the land has been cultivated, also the, uh, the Afro-Caribbean uh, nature of the, of the islands, um, some of the, the social structures that remain. Um, it had a profound impact, this, this appetite for sugar uh, on, on the way that uh, the, the Caribbean looks today, even though sugar production is um, a, a tiny portion of uh, GDP with the, uh, with the exception of Cuba. Hmm. I'd, I'd love to um, kind of get in then to some of the things that create those ghosts. Um, as I said, the, the book does kind of the micro and the macro in a really interesting way. Um, and unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get into all of the details, um, sadly, <laughs> whereas unfortunately, the podcast as a medium is perhaps not as concise as a book. Um, but I'd love to kind of do some amount of sort of a highlights tour or something to um, cover a lot of the main things that come up. And to start us off in that respect, 
um, I think there's a really important sort of foundational element to understand in a lot of ways, the culture, sort of the political culture, the social culture um, that pervaded colonialism and slavery in particular in Jamaica um, before the uprising. And you detail this in your book, this, this change in personality that somehow seemed to affect pretty much, it seems quite clearly from um, the research, almost every white person involved in the power structures um, in Jamaica around slavery. So can you maybe tell us a bit about kind of this culture that seemed to seep into every aspect of island life and created in a lot of ways the groundwork for an uprising? Certainly. Um, and this was one of the really bizarre and scary elements of the research was to see the ways, um, and in their own words, that um, the, the, the white people who would uh, arrive uh, in the mid- middle of the slave society, even if they came as sort of liberal-minded uh, reformers, that uh, they would be corrupted um, and, and, and fairly quickly uh, to the point where they began to take on the attitudes of the slaveholding class, exhibit some of the same cruelties um, that uh, this power structure was, was noted for. And in, in some cases, um, these guys, they were almost all guys who went over, were, were whipping enslaved people themselves within weeks uh, of their arrival. And this is uh, true to what uh, Frederick Douglass, um, uh, an, an American enslaved person, uh, would later say in, 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 in some of his brilliant lectures uh, in, the, in the, um, uh, the antebellum period in the United States. He said that slavery is, of course, immensely cruel to those that it enslaves, but it also has a terrible corrupt, corrupting effect on those who are doing the enslaving. It was really fascinating to read some of the details of just kind of what would happen to these people or the, the way in which they behave. And I was particularly struck by some of them where you could show in the accounts of kind of the, almost a change over time as this took effect um, or sort of differences in behavior over time or how the behaviors would spread from one group to another. Um, do you have an example maybe you could share with us? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a social contagion, um, the uh, s- systemic cruelty of, uh, of, of colonial Jamaica where um, after um, just a short period of time uh, marinating in the, um, uh, the, the sexually libertine culture of Jamaica, which involved, uh, of course, what we would call today rape, um, the uh, casual you know, sexual use of female slaves, enslaved, enslaved women, that uh, these guys would just sort of <laughs> indulge in, that they later said, you know, some of them that they wouldn't have the slightest idea, you know, what to say to a, a woman in Britain after after this experience. Uh, those who refused to take part in in this habit of uh, systemic rape, some of the Christian missionaries, for example, you know, they were regarded as killjoys and as no one you would want to hang out with because they didn't do this. Um, it, it was a really uh, astonishing change in uh, traditional notions of, uh, of British morality. Mm. And one of the aspects that was the most striking was that there was such a culture, it seemed, of almost lawlessness, of kind of the rule book gets thrown out the window, the norms of behavior are just wiped out. And yet, in some few aspects in the island's culture, um, there were some really hotly contested kind of strictures and restrictions. Um, and it would be oversimplistic to say it was like, well, everything was okay except 
about enslaved people, because as you've just detailed, there were a number of aspects of relations with enslaved people that were completely unregulated, unrestricted, etc. And so I was actually kind of interested and a bit surprised to learn that literacy was one of these really contested things that had a lot of debates about what was and was not okay, given just how many things were kind of like, yeah, whatever, go for it, whatever you feel like. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about kind of debates and contests around literacy? Sure. It was not illegal to teach an enslaved person how to read, but it was discouraged. It was uh, viewed as a a dangerous practice such that uh, uh, the enslaved person in question um, would be able to communicate in written fashion with uh, others on neighboring estates, um, that they might learn through smuggled copies of newspapers about uh, abolition debates back in Britain. This was considered dangerous knowledge um, to, to be having. Um, uh, the, the enslaved people themselves um, had a reverence uh, for the English sovereign. Uh, they, they viewed the, uh, uh, the king of England as a, uh, a figure of uh, benevolence. Um, some began to speculate that the king wanted to free them. Um, in 1831, that, uh, that sovereign was uh, King William IV, who had actually visited Jamaica during his time in the Royal Navy and wanted no such thing. He was a, uh, a defender of slavery. And if you uh, were an enslaved person and if you were uh, literate, you, you would read these complex, dangerous things that your um, slave master most certainly did not want you to know. Hmm. And in particular, one of the things that I imagine would be um, quite challenging if the enslaved population was aware of it was just how influential um, the white population Jamaica was in ensuring that slavery would be continued, that the growing abolitionist movement um, would not be able to change government policy. Can you explain to us how the West Indian planters, as they called themselves, were so influential in parliament? Yes. Um, they, many of them were absentee landowners and their real residents and their real uh, affections lay, of course, with their home in Britain, that uh, Jamaica was seen as a place to, uh, to get rich and then go home. And uh, Parliament at the time, prior to the uh, Reform Act, uh, was, was a, a creaky, unwieldy, somewhat uh, corrupt institutions whose uh, corruption institution whose borders still mirrored that of the, the Middle Ages and, and took in uh, no account for the tremendous demographic changes sweeping the island, particularly during uh, the Industrial Revolution. And so places like Birmingham and Manchester, which were exploding with new factories, businesses and residents, had no voice in Parliament, whereas these what were called the rotten boroughs um, in, in, in rural parts of Britain, which had been, had been depopulated since the 13th century, still uh, sent uh, one or even two members to, to parliament. And so uh, it was easy for the, the West Indian interest, as it was known, to put up these uh, kind of puppet candidates in these rotten boroughs, uh, get them elected by paying off um, through means both legal and illegal, the people who live there to um, send either a plant, a sugar planter himself, or uh, one of his stooges um, into the, the the House of Commons, and they could provide then a block on any reform measure uh, that was deemed hostile to uh, the slave trade, or certainly to the subsidies that these guys enjoyed 
um, from from uh, Britain's government on their favorite product, aka sugar. And of course, one of the movements or groups that um, these politicians, these planters, were trying to stave off, as it were, um, was the abolitionist movement. Um, and a lot of this movement, we you know, has come become a known part of sort of mainstream history, at least perhaps in the UK. Um, but we tend to hear about figures like Wilberforce uh, quite a lot. You detail in the book, however, that um, Wilberforce favored a, quote, gradual and smooth route to achieve the abolition of slavery. And in fact, it was a social campaigner, Elizabeth Hayrick, who had a really effective sugar boycott campaign um, that took a much more sort of immediate and direct approach. Can you tell us a bit more about um, her work and any thoughts you might have on why she's less remembered? Yes, I think Elizabeth Hayrick uh, deserves far more recognition than um, she's gotten, uh, particularly as it relates to the abolition of the slave trade. Uh, Wilberforce is, of course, celebrated, but I think what's uh, kind of unappreciated, I think, by uh, the average Briton is that he had largely checked out after the uh, 1807 ban on the overseas trade. He he, he viewed that as um, a, a sort of death knell to this practice in the West Indies and that it would wither away uh, on its own, that slavery would become economically unsustainable. And he was largely a non-entity in this uh, important, what you might call a second act that, you know, you've you've banned the kidnapping of Africans from Africa and the Royal Navy uh, imperfectly, but still reasonably enforces uh, that prohibition. But you've got an internal slave trade still going on within uh, British colonies, um, the the Sugar Islands in the uh, in the Caribbean, and it's left other reformers such as Elizabeth Hayrick, who uh, encouraged a direct economic blow at the heart of this practice, which was the consumption of sugar uh, by uh, Britain, uh, the enormous, insatiable uh, demand for it, and Hayrick, uh, through a series of um, uh, pamphlets, strongly worded pamphlets, encouraged uh, her fellow uh, liberals of the day to either quit sugar entirely, or if they must have it, to get it only from um, those procurers, which could certify East Indian origins for it, which, you know, that, that still wasn't great. I mean, that was uh, indentured servitude and a lot of misery in, uh, in uh, Britain's uh, subcontinental uh, possessions, but it was not the outright um, slavery that was present in the West Indies. Um, Hayrick um, was looked down upon by the, the the male abolitionists. They saw her as annoying, um, but she was uh, more effective in this second act than they were. Why do you think we don't remember her? Well, she died before emancipation, um, and. I, I can't help but think that the fact that she was a woman um, caused some of her contemporaries to look with her um, uh, without the same regard that they held each other. I, there was certainly, I, I think, a misogynistic element to it. Hmm. I wonder if also there's perhaps an element of um, there's a difference between campaigning to get laws changed in Parliament, sort of high politics, as it were, versus a sort of consumer, every street and every shop on the corner type movement, um, perhaps a different focus had an impact as well. 
Yeah, they might. Uh, th- those uh, reformers who were concentrating their elements and sorry, their efforts in, in parliament quite appropriately, because that's where change eventually did come, uh, were perhaps ignoring the ground up uh, effect that uh, a boycott sugar movement would have. And I should point out, too, that many of the same energies that went into the Reform Acts, the justified outrage of uh, those those folks who suffered under the Corn Laws, who were really unable to have, to use a modern term, a seat at the table, that uh, abolitionist activists were able to successfully fuse this idea that, you know, you're you're working in these terrible conditions in Manchester and Birmingham, and you can compare this to the labor of. Um, African slave, the African enslaved people in the Caribbean, that your interests are in some sense united. And uh, Hayrick uh, was among those who saw this clearly. So let's move then to the pointy end of the stick, as it were, um, to the uprising that is mentioned in obviously the title of the book and that the book is um, in many ways focused on. Um, and it's important to note, as you do in the book, that uh, this uprising is not the first slave uprising. In fact, that was a frequent enough occurrence that there were all manner of policies and attempted mitigations for it um, in Jamaica and in other slave-holding colonies. Um, so what made this particular movement and rebellion different? It was incredibly well organized. At the center of it was uh, an educated enslaved person named Sam Sharp who had been given a pass to move from sugar estate to sugar estate um, to preach uh, the Bible. Um, Not every uh, owner allowed this because uh, Jamaicans, uh, white Jamaicans were by and large totally irreligious, um, viewed Christianity with contempt. Um, But there were others who saw this as a way of, you know, perhaps pacifying uh, their enslaved people and maybe you know, those sections of the Bible which talk about obedience, that they could really lean on those and um, ensure that enslaved people would not uh, reach for uh, knives and torches. Uh, Sam Sharp had an interesting theology. He um, began to preach on some of the forbidden um, verses of the Bible, such as those that emphasize freedom, uh, those that uh, describe uh, the Christian experience as one of liberation. And he fused this with a current affairs message that there was an abolitionist sentiment brewing uh, back in Great Britain, and that it was only a matter of time before freedom would come to the West Indies and that enslaved people could take power into their own hands uh, simply by refusing to work, by peacefully sitting down on the, uh, the day after the Christmas holiday, December 27th, and simply asking for half the wages that a free person of color would receive for working in the sugar fields. And what allowed this movement, or what? how was this movement so well organized? Can you kind of take us inside it a little bit? Sam Sharp uh, was a brilliant organizer, and to that end, he swore in, and he literally made people swear on the Bible that they would sit down on uh, December 27th, 1831, and refuse to work. And these people, in turn, um, uh, administered this this ceremony, this swearing ceremony to others. Um, This was done in as much secrecy as um, plantation culture could allow. 
um, it was remarkable the news of it, um, particularly the organization across 70 miles of Northwest Jamaica involving uh, an estimated 60,000 uh, participants, uh, that its operational details could have remained under wraps as they did. Um, the white slave owners heard about it, of course, and they, they, they felt like something was brewing um, because the Christmas holiday, which was this two-day feast everyone called Junkanoo, that that was when the militia always went on alert. This is when enslaved people were given uh, the freedom to, to, to uh, spontaneously laugh, dance, sing, drink in ways that they never were um, in the other days of the calendar. And um, those uh, military minds in Jamaica had felt like, all right, this is uh, something that we do that is longstanding tradition and we can't really take it away. Um, but this is a, a potential locus for mischief. And mm. um, news of Sharp's conspiracy did, in fact, leak out, but only the general parameters. And um, rumored rebellions were always in the mix during previous chunk of news. So the, the, the true scope of this highly planned, highly effective rebellion uh, were under wraps until it had uh, unfolded. So what actually happened? How did it unfold? On the night of December 27th, 1831, several fires broke out on uh, plantations uh, in the hills above Montego Bay. And this um, initial burst of property destruction was against Sam Sharp's will. He had specified, we're not going to hurt anyone. We're not going to destroy anything. We're just simply going to sit down and peacefully ask for wages. Somebody disobeyed Sam Sharp from the start. Um, his lieutenants uh, were loyal to him, but they also had a, um, a sense of self-defense, that they weren't going to let themselves uh, be abused or killed uh, simply for this act of resistance. And so it's still debated today why those fires were lit and who lit them. But um, from that moment on, the, this, the rebellion took on a, a, a chaotic character. Um, on, on many estates, um, the enslaved people did exactly as they promised to do. They, they sat down and peacefully refused to work. On, on other estates, um, buildings started to go up in flames. And what then, give, if you can give us a sort of brief overview, kind of how, how long did the uprising last? Um, what was sort of the totals, I suppose. Um, it's obviously not nearly as evocative as reading the narrative description, but can you give us a sense of kind of how much of an immediate impact this had? Sure. At the end of it, um, first of all, I, I'd mentioned earlier that 60,000 enslaved people were involved. I mean, that alone represented by far the biggest and most well-organized uh, uprising in the entire empire up till that time. Um, hundreds of estate buildings uh, were destroyed, millions of pounds worth of damage, um, approximately uh, 300 to 400, and that's probably a gross undercount, by the way, of enslaved people were uh, shot to death or hung in these five-minute, you know, quote-unquote trials in the midst of it. And um, there were only... Um, a, a, a supposed 14 white people who uh, were killed 
uh, during this rebellion. But uh, in the course of researching the book, I came up with uh, some evidence that that was grossly exaggerated, that I could find evidence of only two white fatalities, um, that the, f- the the number of 14, which uh, arose uh, only uh, in the years after the rebellion, I could find no evidence to support that figure. So the, you know, the conclusion here is, of course, um, that this was uh, an extraordinarily harsh reprisal uh, against those who uh, participated, um, but that the the rebels, as they were called in the uh, in the press of the day, had shown tremendous restraint in uh, not uh, taking the lives of those who had abused them for so long. And why? Sam why Sharp. Have, what, okay. What what was his what was his strategy there? Nonviolence. He anticipated Gandhi and Martin Luther King by many years, and he was uh, he was a man of faith. And the the way that he read scripture uh, was was with an emphasis on on mercy, in addition to justice. He he viewed the shedding of blood as a profoundly unchristian thing to do. And speaking then of the idea of faith, we we've spoken throughout around literacy, around um, Sam Sharp, around his thinking. Um, the importance of Christian uh, preachers kind of throughout this culture as being something that the uh, plantation owners uh, were not necessarily particularly in favor of. What happened to them after the uprising, the harsh reprisals on the enslaved people, but what happened to the missionaries? Yes, the white missionaries who had come over from Britain starting in the 1820s, they they were doing something that really had never been done before, which was uh, preaching the gospel to the slaves, to the enslaved people, um, and and this this I think you know from a historian's point of view um, was one of the most important factors. There were other factors at work, of course, but this was a really important factor in triggering the rebellion and ending slavery in the British Empire. And so here's something um, that you're not often going to hear uh, secular historians say, but uh, Christian missionaries were the real one of the real good guys uh, in this in this story, um, both the white missionaries who were allowed into the Sugar Islands, and you know preached with sort of a muzzle in their mouth. You know, as I mentioned, they they were forbidden from preaching on freedom verses of the Bible. Um, but also, of course, the um, the, the 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 black um, Christians in this story, um, those who uh, took on roles as uh, deacons and as as Bible teachers, you know, they were the ones who really um, spread the the theology, the liberation theology, if you like, of of um, salvation as a profound act of freedom, freedom from bondage. This became um, one of the driving forces, the most driving force, I would argue, um, in the 1831-1832 rebellion and the end of slavery. So. Tell us a bit about that. How, how did Britain react to this uprising and the aftermath? Oh well, political Britain was horrified. It, it represented a, a a military failure of the highest level. You know, here was their most profitable sugar island um, uh, out of control for six weeks. An entire year's harvest ruined. Um, the 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 sense that this is going to be enormously expensive to keep up. Uh, this particular, if you'll excuse the term, business practice of uh, raising sugar through um, forced labor. Parliament was quite cold-blooded about this. You know, I, I've mentioned a genuine religious ethos behind 
um, the, uh, uh, the the rebellion itself and some of the theology that led to it. But that, that really wasn't going on in Parliament. Um, it, it was a real uh, kind of real politic thinking that happened in the in the House of Commons in 1832 in response to this news of this uprising, which just splashed all over the London press. Almost no story occupied more column inches uh, during that spring as in uh, 1832. And uh, a comparison might be made to the United States in Vietnam or um, uh, big military powers that try to um, maintain these um, conflicts that are that are half a globe away, and just how draining and expensive that gets. And um, when when Parliament decided we're going to end uh, this institution, it was done with uh, an eye uh, towards the bank book, uh, towards uh, Britain's status on the world stage, and the humanitarian motives that obviously are quite real. Uh, about this practice, it was it was viewed as, you know, this is going to be embarrassing uh, for Britain to keep doing this. And what were the reactions in the obviously much more ge- much geographically closer United States? Well, those abolitionists in the United States who had been preaching on the same issue for years uh, looked upon Britain with huge favor. That my God, here was a a, a world power that did the right thing. And August 1st, 1834, uh, sorry, 1838, the, the date of like true emancipation through the, uh, uh, through the West Indies, uh, those in the United States who looked to the same thing happening in their country adopted August 1st as a holiday and celebrated it with uh, political speeches, picnics, these multiracial gatherings, um, of course, in the North, this, you never saw this in the South, but every August 1st, uh, the, this holiday would be celebrated and they'd have celebrity guest speakers come and talk about what the good that Britain had done and how the United States needed to follow that example. This was obviously viewed with um, horror and suspicion by slaveholding interests or those who um, were anxious about uh, American hegemony on the continent. And um, this, this gave rise to kind of a conspiracy theory that what Britain was really doing by freeing her slaves was uh, a- attempting to foment rebellion in the southern United States so that they could get back into the game in North America and claim the American West, which is now the American West for themselves, to move down from uh, British Columbia and, and create a, a free soil empire. And this is what caused in the 1830s Southern interests to become extremely anxious about annexing Texas and about extending uh, their slave empire all the way to the Pacific. Uh, this, this, of course, uh, for historians of the Civil War, they will recognize this as the seeds of the, uh, of the secessionist crisis in 1861 and the eventual war. Mm. Very interesting um, to have this immediate impact on the island and then kind of the reverberations, almost like a literally you can visualize kind of the ripples coming out. Um, and of course, the final ripple, I guess, um, you have it in the title, The Revolt That Ended Slavery in the British Empire. Um, 
Can you help us understand how this rebellion did that? Yes. Um, Parliament was still uh, deadlocked on this question, but the news of the rebellion um, uh, had had shocked ordinary citizens, had shocked uh, those who held the purse strings. Parliament had been opened up by the Reform Act. There were a group of young reformers within the colonial office who knew, they saw the writing very clearly, that more rebellions of this were of this nature were going to be inevitable. Um, it had been a military failure ultimately because uh, the king's troops and the island militia were successfully able to contain it, but only after six weeks and only after a tremendous cost. And um, it's my argument uh, this, in this book that it was the enslaved people's uh, desire for liberty, um, their sophistication in organizing. Uh, this revolt, uh, that they spoke, if you will, in Parliament. Their voices were finally heard in the way that they should have been heard all along. And this military and economic expediency is uh, finally what uh, what brought this practice to an end. Mm, thank you for explaining that. Um, it's particularly interesting to think about it in the context of uh, the planters we had spoken about earlier having their voices in Parliament and sort of um, the amount of effort a massively organized rebellion required to have the enslaved people be able to uh, make their opinions heard as well. Um, very interesting to kind of put those next to each other. Yes. Um, it was the tool, by the way, of a uh, what was called a select committee, uh, a term that the United States Congress has, has appropriated um, to inquire into the roots of the rebellion, um, as well as uh, an inquiry into experiments in emancipation. What had happened, for example, in those U.S. states, such as uh, New York and Pennsylvania, that had abolished slavery um, in those decades? What had happened in Haiti uh, after uh, the successful uprising by Toussaint Louverture? These were questions that Parliament was keenly interested in. Could enslaved people um, be entrusted with citizenship? Would there be revanchist bloodshed in these societies after emancipation? This was uh, a big experiment that they were uh, about to embark upon. And I, I think this, this was one of those moments of real awe, I think, for um, anyone who was paying attention to politics at the time. Britain was on the cusp of doing something uh, extremely consequential, and uh, those involved knew it. Um, and those planters, of course, who saw their their, their once solid base uh, erode uh, in Parliament um, knew that uh, the, the, their, their, their days of um, easy money were coming to a close. How did they react to that? Well, they uh, sought compensation. Um, this is one of those really horrible ironies that uh, Britain uh, paid reparations for slavery. Um, they paid them to the wrong people. Um, the, the planters negotiated for, at first, a ten, a ten, ten million dollar, a ten, sorry, ten million pound loan to um, compensate for the, the the loss of their human property. You know, they were going to have this taken away by the government. And, they, they wanted some compensation. Um, this got negotiated upward to an outright gift of 
20 million pounds. And uh, Britain only finished paying off the, the debt on that. It represented 40% of the national budget at the time. Um, it was only a few years ago that Britain finally paid off the last interest for that, uh, that gift to uh, the slave owners. How is Sam Sharp remembered today? He's on the Jamaican $100 bill. Uh, sorry, $50 bill. He's uh, regarded as a, uh, a national hero. Um, that's a formal term, by the way. Um, in, in Jamaica, he's known as the right excellent Sam Sharp. Uh, he is uh, certainly taught in schools, but this was not always the case. Um, after uh, Jamaica gained uh, independence from, from Britain in 1962, um, his memory had been totally effaced. Um, virtually nobody but uh, real hardcore historians knew uh, about him, and the 1832 rebellion was dimly remembered, if at all. And so it was during the 1970s that a committee of Jamaican historians uh, sought to find people in the nation's past who had done great deeds, and um, Sam Sharp was um, an obvious choice. Um, for historians, of course, the the way that he has been, he had been erased from all but um, colonial, colonial prosecutorial documents is a great tragedy. I, I would love to know more about Sam Sharp, uh, more about his, his personality, more about exactly what he was thinking um, in, in regards to the, the methods of resistance. Um, I went into the project with some humility because I, I'm not Jamaican, I'm, I'm American. Um, is, is this really um, my story to tell about this national hero of Jamaica? And um, by the conclusion of my research, I had concluded that uh, uh, Jamaica, of course, belongs, uh, Sam Sharp rather, belongs to Jamaica, but he is a, a hero that the whole world should know about. Mm. Given the importance in the book of um, highlighting and resurfacing history and events that have been um, not become part of kind of mainstream, at least British or American narratives of um, slavery and abolition, we've talked about Elizabeth Hayrick and we've talked about Sam Sharp. Um, are there any other kind of moments or aspects or maybe people um, that you think would be our sort of important correctives to these mainstream expectations that you want to highlight from the book? Yeah, I the importance of influencing state actors, I think, is one of the great lessons here. That it really took engagement from uh, from Parliament and to have their backs up against the wall in, in some fashion um, was really what caused them reluctantly, collectively, uh, to do the right thing. That they saw that um, the alternative, the main, the maintenance of the status quo, was going to be more costly in the long run. And also the notion of um, change as not always being pretty. That $20 million pound gift to, to, the, to the slave owners, for example, I mean, terribly dishonorable, really disgusting, actually. Um, but nonetheless, it's what it took to end the practice, to end this horrific tradition and um, I should also say that emancipation in uh, 1838 did not uh, represent some sort of like immediate paradise uh, for those who labored in sugar fields. 
that um, a, a kind of a, a bondage to um, that way of life was was going to continue, and that uh, it was going to take many, many, many years um, to achieve anything like uh, like real equality, economic and otherwise. And that's a journey that still um, is ongoing. Mm. Thank you for um, highlighting those. I think a lot of those lessons are really helpful. And it's one of those things where maybe you would look at the book and go, oh, that's history. Okay. It's like, well, actually, there's still a lot of ways in which, as you said at the very beginning, the ghosts of that history are still very much real and present today. Um, So it's useful, as I said, in a lot of senses. Um, But this book has obviously been out now for a little bit. It was published in 2020. So would you mind sharing with us what you've been working on since or what your current project is? Oh, yes. Thank you. I'm uh, now at work on a a book about American slavery and American emancipation that uh, has an eerily similar argument to it, which is that a great world power uh, must be forced to do the right thing. And uh, almost through a series of short-term political expediencies that um, aren't really very far-seen, even though they have uh, far-seen effects. And so... um, the United States infamously failed to heed, heed uh, Britain's example of a largely peaceful emancipation um, and uh, had a four-year uh, civil war, which um, those, those divisions, of course, still exist in the United States. Uh, the most immediate um, beneficial effect of that civil war was emancipation. And uh, this, uh, this new book, I'm certainly, obviously, this is not the first book at all. This is one of thousands of books which have dealt with the subject um, uh, about the, the the mechanics of uh, of emancipation. Mm, interesting and very much related, as you said, um, to the story, but perhaps not a connection um, that would be immediately obvious. So I'm really glad that you're going and investigating it and bringing it to um, everyone's attention. So thank you very much for um, sharing your expertise with us. Um, telling us about your new project. And as a reminder to listeners, uh, the book that we've been discussing is titled Island on Fire, The Revolt That Ended Slavery in the British Empire from Harvard University Press. Um, Tom, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.